everything kind of worked and there's an appreciation for potential and attempt and and there's big ideas people like that here and, and it was it fit and like David Foster who helped me move here when my wife was at her like the most doubtful moments when we were like oh my god we're not moving again to try one of Brant's ideas and he called her and he said listen to me this is where your husband belongs Welcome, friends, to Exec Producer. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Every episode of Exec Producer offers a deep dive into one of your favorite shows from the point of view of both the producer who dreamt it up and the executive who championed it. Where the idea came from, the hurdles they faced in selling it, and ultimately, how it made it to air and into popular culture. I've worked as an executive at four separate networks, and I've produced and overseen hundreds of hours of television. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I hope to share some of that wisdom with you. So settle in, turn it up, and enjoy. And please also remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. So with that, thank you again and enjoy the show. Okay, okay, we're rolling. Here we are. Uh, I don't know, I, I guess at, at uh, the manor, the farm. The manor, yeah. The manor. Yeah, it has a name, the manor. Yeah, Ravenwood Manor, I believe, but it really should be called Pinvidic Manor. That's right, it should be Brant's Manor. Brant's Manor. Yeah. It has a nice better ring to it. Yeah. Feels a little bit like Wayne Manor though when you pull up here. <laughs> exactly. Right. You're driving through the Bat Cave and it's uh you know, it's you're a like, whole... where am I going? Right. And then it's like it all comes to pass. That's why I'm that's why I'm out this far. Whenever I meet somebody and they hear I live out this far, they're like, Oh my god, you live out this far and then they come to the house, they're like, Oh right. I get it. I get it. It's cheap and big. Yeah. That's the way to go. I don't know. I don't think I would put describe you as cheap in any way though. Well, yeah. Cheap and big right. for what you get. You know what I mean? Let's like, it's good bang for the buck. I get it's efficient. Yeah. It's efficient. Yeah, but yes. So we are sitting here today with Bram Pinvidic. Uh, you know, typically on, on the show, we discuss a show, right? We do a deep dive into one show, how it was made, all of the, you know, hurdles and whatnot. And I had a show that we could have done. I was, we were, we were heading towards a show. Yes. And you have had many shows. Yeah, I mean, I you're the man with many, many shows, yeah. but, uh, but this is going to be about a movement. You know, I think it's much bigger than one show. I love your style. Yes. And you're one, you know, one much bigger than just one guest, your typical <laughs> guest. So Brant is a lot of things. Uh, for those of you who know him, you know, you already kind of know that he is a lot more than just any one label. Uh, and for those of you who don't, I think you're going to be really pleased after this hour. But uh, if you just take from his bio alone, he is a producer. He is a director. He's a podcaster. He's a Forbes contributor. He's a high intensity dad. And he is a rejecter of average. That's me. Yeah, all the above. All the above. I would also throw in there a Canadian. Canadian. Almost an American. Almost. An animal rescue yeah. Yeah. philanthropist, activist. True. Uh, and you know, probably 23 other things too. Yeah, Adventure Club. Adventure Club. Just When you put it all on paper, it sounds super impressive. It's a lot of things. Yeah, that's why it helps to write all these things down and give them special words. That's right. Well, I think, more important. I think the thing that captures it mostly, though, is this brand of rejecting average. Yeah. That's right? That's kind of my thing these days. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So let's talk about rejecting average. You know, typically, I ask everyone in the light bulb. What is the light bulb for the show? Where did the idea first come from? But as we're talking about a movement here and a movement of rejecting average, kind of where did that... Where did that all start for you? Um, it started from my agent, Sean Perry, 16 years ago when I had brought this show from Canada and I had done so much work on the show in Canada trying to get it sold in Canada. I had spent all my own money and worked my tail off and spent everybody else's money trying to get the show off the ground in Canada. 
knowing nothing about television, never being in television, and learning the hard way that Canadians just don't produce television like that. So all I had was a sort of semi-produced show. When I came to the U.S. and I did a round of meetings, and I met a bunch of people, and Sean being one of them, it went over really well because I had had so much work done on the pitch because I basically filmed it myself. So I had like format booklets, booklets that were like outlining every episode and how it would work because I needed to do that because I didn't have money to edit the show. And then in the room, I knew the show so, so intimately because I had pitched it in people's living rooms to raise money for the idea, otherwise I wouldn't be able to eat. So you learn how to you know, illustrate the value of these concepts at such a high level because of desperation and need. And I'd done that so many times. And I actually had video. I had sizzle tapes and video and format tapes before anybody was even doing that yet. And so that was all out of desperation. But what happened was, is when we went around and pitched that show as the guy from Canada with this cool idea, everybody kind of sparked to that. And he said to me, he sat me down and be like, listen to me, every single room you get into from this moment on, you have to bring that level of extra effort to the pitch. This has to be your calling card. This is what people already know you for. You got to go into that. So to his credit, he forced me to do that. So every time I had a pitch that I was going out with that had any real significance, I was always trying to go, what's the next level? What's the other piece of this that I can add that can illustrate it, that can take it from, hey, I have an idea to, hey, I have an idea. I'm so passionate about it and there's so much to it. I've put enough into it that you'll remember it. And that sort of sparked that germ of an idea of like, how do I do it just a little bit different? Not even better, just different, memorable, just like squeeze out every bit of it from everything. So that's sort of where that began. Okay, but then are you spending as much time with the presentation as with the idea itself then for all these ideas? I mean, were the ideas, did you sell some things along the way that maybe were not even that special just because you were that memorable? Um, yeah, but that was more a product of the time. There was a time in reality TV where if you had something really well thought out, and was kind of a big cool idea like you'd sell that because there was risk and people like to take chances so that really paid off for me at that time in the marketplace i would not say that that formula works today because the marketplace is so different but i went through that stage where everything i was pitching worked really well there was a time when we were at three ball where we sold 13 out of 14 pitches in a row and it was like that was just a but that was just, again, it was a product of the marketplace. There's a lot of confidence going on. Things were going really well. So you get sort of in a lucky run. And I developed some, you know, I would say sort of advanced pitch strategies and stuff that worked really well at the time. And so a lot of those I took and I'm taking into the, into my book that I sold to random sales. And, I'm, and my entire sort of platform now is built on some of that stuff that I developed through that pitch strategy over those years. Got it. So you had you had some secrets and maybe we were playing a slightly different game than everyone else. Um, I mean, listen, when you look back at it, that makes a great story. So I'm going to go with that. It didn't feel like that at the time. The field just felt like desperation. Um, there's a really good story. So Howard Owens, um, who you know well, he had taken over this gig at, the, at Nat Geo as the president of Nat Geo. So it was just kind of funny. So we had a show together and uh, I knew he loved it. I knew he loved it. And so I happened to be in DC and he was having the green light meeting that day. And so we had lunch scheduled. So I was going to pick him up to walk over for lunch. I was figuring it was going to be a celebratory lunch because he loved the show. He's the president. He's bringing to the green light. This is good. So I get there and I actually get his 
assistant comes down and says, hey, Howard, I'd like to, to meet with you upstairs. I was like, okay. So I go up there and he comes out of the boardroom and he's like, hey, Brent, you got to come in here. Your show's going down in flames. I'm not having any luck explaining it the way you do and with your passion. I think it's better if you come in here. Okay. <laughs> so I was like, okay. And so if you're a producer, you know, you never get into a network green light meeting. And to be fair, this was before I fit, like this wasn't when every single network was doing this. When I was running TLC, we didn't have big green light meetings like this. We had like, hey, we greenlit something and now we're going to explain it to you. This was more like before we say yes, everybody in the room gets to pick on it, right? Right. You're facing the firing squad and you yeah, just so thought you were getting like 20 some... some odd people in this meeting. And when I was listening to explain the show, I was like, that's not exactly the show. I mean, there's some of it there. And everybody was just, that room just felt mean and nasty and they just wanted to say mean things. Now, I was able to bring it sort of back on track we end up getting the order for the show, which was good. But I remember leaving that meeting going like, oh my God, like Steve Michaels isn't in that room. Like if he had a show there, it'd be dead. Like every other producer is getting the show ripped to shreds by that mean ass room, right? And so I remember thinking like every pitch I do from now on is going to be in one of these meetings. I have to come up with a way where it's not who I pitch to, it's who they pitch to and how can I make it so that they don't have to rely on their own memory or whatever. I need to make it sort of seamless. So that's when I started doing the video recordings of my pitch to audio and sending it with the deck so they could just play it and it would pitch the whole thing itself. And then I started doing that on camera and that sort of took off for a couple of years and and that went really well. So So it was just like, it was kind of a desperation feel on how I would change that pitch thing. I don't know if it's desperation. It sounds just more smart to me, right? Because so often it gets broken down to, oh, there's buyers and there's sellers. But I can tell you, having spent, gosh, a dozen years at networks, those those you know buyers are actually sellers. Yes. To the point that you just made. They're just and that's not, what, yeah. They're just not selling something maybe as well as, you know, how You know, it's, it's funny. Sold. I was just giving this, I, I did a big keynote speech the other day and I was talking about this exact story and I was saying like, yeah, it was weird, like, me on camera pitching the show. Hey, it's Brian from MyWorks. I want to talk to you a little bit about Demolition Dinner or whatever, right? Like, it was kind of corny and kind of strange, and that was a little bit of personality. And I'm like, I said, like, I'm sure lots of people made jokes, and there was lots of, like, making fun. But, you know, like, that's what I needed to do, and it's fine. You want to giggle? Go ahead. You're you're at my house. They paid for this house. So, whatever. It worked out just fine, you know what I mean? But, like, I was willing to take those kind of risks and, like, stretch Again, I felt like it was desperation at the time. Like, I just needed to crank out more stuff. I needed to sell more stuff. We were on a roll. I needed more things to keep rolling, you know? Right, but, you know, when you're an executive and the meetings show up on your calendar, sometimes that you agree to, sometimes you're like, how the F did this get, right. you know, did I, what, did I say yes to this? I can tell you, every time I saw that you were coming to the room, it's like, oh, boy, what's he got this time? <laughs> yeah. Last time it was this giant iPad. That's right, yeah. Right? Big screen, yeah. Big screen iPad. This is cool. Then the next time it was a SUV, yeah. and you pitched me a show oh, yeah. in the back of your car That's right, in the on the way to the lunch, right. right? It's like you were always kind of next level, but it worked also because you're you. I don't yeah. know if if just anyone could say, come meet me in the back of my... Yeah, and I think it's like I played into that well. Like I said, if you're willing to be a little bit you know, like I was okay being a little self-deprecating and I was okay being that guy a little bit. You got to be okay with that. You know what I mean? Because not everybody's gonna be like, wow, that was so cool. There's enough people out there being like, what a douchebag. Like there's a little of that. And I was like, you know what? You get that 
by the way, you get that no matter what. No matter who you are, no matter what you're doing, more people are saying that about you than you think, right? And that's just the way the world is. And you just got to be willing to take a little stretch on that. And when it pays off, it's great. I also spent my, the first 30 years of my life in Canada doing that with zero payoff, less than payoff, negative payoff. So that was like beating my head up against the wall, trying new things, trying to always do stuff different with less than zero results, moving to the United States with exponentially amazing results right out of the gate is like, oh my God, I love this country. I love this place. I love these people. I love this gig. Like everything's great. And so I just sort of like rode that wave. Okay. So you talk about Sean Perry and that you came here with the show and that yeah. you're rejecting average there. I have to imagine that back in Canada, you were rejecting average as well. It just might've looked a little bit different. Yeah, it did. It just not treated the same. It is it in Canada. It's a different culture. And so that was far more like, what on earth are you doing, you fool? Like, it wasn't like, oh, this could be interesting or like, what an interesting idea. Let's explore that, that the potential, the opportunity, the, the, the things that the Canadian culture doesn't have the same acceptance of. We don't have the same appreciation for here. Everything kind of worked and there's an appreciation for potential and attempt and, and there's big ideas. People like that here and, and it was, it fit and like David Foster who helped me move here when my wife was at her like the most doubtful moments when we were like, oh my God, we're not moving again to try one of Brant's ideas. And he called her and he said, listen to me, this is where your husband belongs. This is where he was meant to be. And it's like, I remember it was, we moved in April, almost six, 15 years to the day. And you know, it was, it was December that year after we moved, I'm riding down the 405 in my convertible Sebring I have one of these Blackberry machines and you know, I'm, I'm sending messages to people saying, Hey, have a great Christmas holiday and whatever. And I realized, Oh my God, I have more people that I care about and I'm excited about conversing with in eight months in Los Angeles than I did in 30 years back home in Canada. And it's like, just, this was just where I belong. This was what I was meant to be doing. Okay. But how do you go from 30 years in Canada as I don't want to say misfit, but maybe like not yeah, quite fitting yeah. in to what you to immediately having big agent at big agency, you know, world famous Grammy, multi Grammy award winning, you know, legendary song guy trying to convince you to move down here. I mean, you must have been doing something right. Yeah, listen, it, it success is a product of opportunity, luck, hard work, all that kind of stuff, right? So it's like, yeah, I. I get good breaks, but I also earn those of 30 years. So if you add it out, up and spread out the, the fortune and the good things that happened, like it would be pretty average. Anybody who worked hard at something for long enough would get there, right? I just happened to go through an, a long enough drought of absolute crap. Okay, then, okay so then I finally got to cash in some of the work. And that was, that was kind of a little bit of the way it happened for me. It was like, yeah, I, I had been pitching TV shows you know, literally and metaphorically for years raising money for business and stuff. Like I had gone through those moments before I was living in my parents' basement with my two year old child. Like I had been through the fire. So it's like, I had a lot of wealth of experience and hardship that you get from going through any journey. So finally I was able to cash some of that in and some of the skills that I had acquired were able to translate. And even when you asked me about this podcast and like, want to do something more than just a show. I was like, well, 
the one thing that I've learned over that is how valuable the skills that in entertainment teaches you and how valuable they translate across other areas of business, and particularly where my focus is now. It's like I can't believe how the skills as a producer and as an executive producer are valuable and translate into other areas of the world. It's kind of amazing. Is this a realization that just happened for you within you know recent times, or is yeah. this something kind of... No, Definitely. Okay. I mean, we're talking the last year. Last two years, last year, you know, exponentially, but last couple of years, really noticed it. I noticed it with the film first. I did that the film Why I'm Not on Facebook. I was in it as a documentary. It did pretty well for a documentary, which is whatever. Um, but as an independent documentary, it was like, it kind of did well. But as some, as I was in it and sort of, like, I was talent then, and I was a creator. And I remember being this huge meeting with Samsung. They were funding a show we were working on. And I was there and there was like 30 of them in there from every department and all the WME and IMG team and everybody was involved in this meeting. And it was like blank faces when everybody's introducing themselves and talking about what they were doing as a producer. But the second we started talking about being a creative and a creator and talent, everybody's eyes lit up. Like they had a whole other appreciation for what that meant because in their mind, everybody's a producer, everybody's working at whatever. You list your credits, like who gives a crap? But like having some sort of vision and some sort of creative, almost integrity, which is like, I would not describe myself as someone with creative integrity, but it just so like felt like there was an, there was a, a level up there, which I was really surprised. Um, and then when I started doing more consulting and corporate stuff, that's when I really started to realize like, holy smokes, like it's amazing how the skills translate, which I never would have expected. Cause I think everybody in TV and anybody that listening to this, who knows us or you or in TV, like one of our issues is we don't feel qualified for these jobs because it's not like being a doctor where you go to school and you get a degree that tells you exactly how to do your job and you do those things well. And you, you, rise to the ranks because you do x and y well whereas like in tv in these and in a creative endeavor like this which is so subjective is like nobody really knows how anybody gets which job where how who what you're supposed to be doing and like we all have a little bit of that fear and i coach enough people in tv now to know like we're all sharing that same thing where it's just like what am i qualified for other than what selling and making tv shows or reality shows or you know, packaging scripted shows like what on earth is that and we're so insular in our world and it's so narrow you don't realize how valuable those skills are outside of these walls it's stunning i guess it just comes down to convincing other people that you are able to do those things i think it's more about convincing yourself because it's out there right like i started writing for forbes and the articles did really well and the people that reached out were like what i would have considered like wow like you know heavy hitters in other industries but for them, the skills I was able to bring to the table in outlining and pitching and presenting and just producing is kind of, sta it's staggering. It really is staggering how well you can adapt to other areas of life. And I was talking about this last week. Um, I was doing a keynote for this university. And I was explaining to them that like when I did this book, I was so nervous about writing because I don't write books. And I don't, you know, so I had a, I had a writing partner that, that the publisher you know, assigned me to like help me all the way through it. And I was so nervous about that stuff. But within the first couple of chapters, I was realizing like, wait a minute, like I'm laying all this stuff out. And it's because you realize like over the last 15 years, I've been writing a lot of stuff. Like I write 
hundreds of treatments a year. I write episodes of television and dialogue and interview questions and like the ability to succinctly convey ideas is something that I've been practicing for more than a decade. You'd be surprised how good you are at it outside of that. When the network tells you you're absolute trash and your show sucks and why is it so slow, like you get an idea that maybe it's just average. It's not. Please, they're not that kind. No, they're not that kind. I used, <laughs> I saved some language there. <laughs> well, so I mean, what I'm getting from you is uh, a, a great sort of self-reliance, right? Just jump in and do it. And I remember you actually gave me that advice. And you said when you made your documentary, where it sounds like a lot of this kind of new version of where you are today yeah. stemmed from that decision you said what separates you from 99.9% of the world is that you did it. That's right. You did it. Yeah. And I, and I talk about this a lot. Like there are literally thousands of producers with better credits that have done this more successfully that have done what I've done at a much higher level. But at the end of the day, like, you know, who's the guy who did the book proposal and went to random house and sold? like nobody else put up their hand to say, I'm an expert at this. So I was like willing to put up my hand and it's not comfortable. I will tell you that it's not comfortable because you're just like, oh my God, if I just had one more this, if I had one more hit show, if I could just do this, then I'd be qualified for it. Right. And the truth is, is like, you're, we're, you know, in this business at any level, you're already qualified for anything you really want to do. It's just a matter of putting your brain to it. And that's been an interesting exploration. And I think, the book really showed me that because I did what's the book proposal and the book proposals, the book proposal is really hard to do. It's a, it's a lot of work and it's like, I liken it to Navy SEAL training. Like, you know, maybe not using a lot of that stuff, but it separates the people who talk about writing a book and the people who are actually going to do it. And the publishers take that very seriously. If you've gone through that process, it's kind of like, okay, you're serious. And what I realized is I produced that, document the same way I would have done a series Bible, the same way I would have done a pilot script, the same way I would have done any of that stuff, which is if you don't do it at the highest level, it's dead on arrival. And like anybody who's producing, think about that. Every single project you do is like a startup business and you have to do it at the highest possible level. You can't leave sections of it just kind of average or mediocre. It doesn't work like that. You have to produce every second of whatever that pitch is, whatever the final delivery is, whatever the Bible is, whatever the outline, the dialogue, the interview, all of it has to be at your absolute squeezing the best out of you. With a 0% guarantee of a That's return right. on the investment. Exactly. So it's like, if you can do that at a high level in an entertainment industry, which is, you know, illustrious in the, in the way it looks, it's lucrative when it works. It's, and it's wildly competitive, right? Like people want to be in this industry. If you can get up that high and do it well, it's like those skills are amazingly transferable. And that's what I noticed in the book proposals. Like I crushed that proposal. Like it was at the level of which I would have done any piece of TV. So that's why when it gets into New York in the publishing world, they're like, whoa, like this is serious. And when I take those meetings, it's like, whoa, this guy's got his shit together. And so that's why I got, I got three offers on the thing. And it's like, I don't, I never really ran a business. You know what I mean? Like I got big fancy jobs because I was selling shows, not because I'm some brilliant business leader. Um, you know, and I don't write books and I barely read books, but when you put it all together and I, I basically produce that side of my life now. 
Okay. So backing up for people who are not familiar with your trajectory, you know, going back to the story, you came from Canada, you got in these rooms, you went on a pretty, obviously you had a great trajectory because you did incredibly well, but a pretty normal, typical trajectory where you got a job here, you went to a yeah. network there and job, this, that, the other, you're producing, producing, producing. But then in this last year, whatever, 18 months, you took a pretty, I don't know, sharp turn, but you took a turn. Yeah, it's a pretty good turn. Yeah, yeah I, I think a few things happened, right? Like I, I started writing for Forbes, which was fun. I got asked to do a, a like a little bit more corporate consulting on the business side of things. But just randomly? I mean, how do you just randomly write for Forbes? They must have, somebody must have connected a dot. All right, it's a funny story. So I was doing publicity for uh, one of the movies. I think it was the Pokemon Go movie they were, you know, pushing. And my publicist at the time had connected with Forbes and she and he wanted them to do an article on me as a business guy and reaching out and branching out my brand, sort of, so to speak, right? Because through the video, through the movies, the social media started to build, and there was a few other things. So the idea was we reached out to Forbes to say, "Hey, I want to, uh, I want you to meet this guy. He's a cool business guy, runs a business, yada yada." Right? We kept pushing the meeting because she was in New York, so on and so forth. And I think by the time I ended up meeting with her, I think she had forgotten why she was meeting with me, because when we sat down. Like she was interviewing me like I was wanting to be a potential contrib- contributor is what it felt like. I didn't even know what that meant at the time. And so I was listening to her and she was asking more about my writing and what I was doing and, and a lot more of the business stuff about what I speak about and how I help companies with their investor presentations or, you know, reworking their company messages and stuff. And so, and then she started asking like, can I get some samples of what you write? And I'm thinking to myself like, oh, right, like, she thinks I want to be a writer. This is silly. But I was like, okay. So she emailed me like, yeah, just, you know, send us a couple samples. So I wrote a couple stories and I was just like, there you go. And so she was like, Hey, these are really good. Like um, I'll submit them and see what happens. She submitted them. They came back and said, my editor loves this, this take and loves the idea of your journey and that you're in Hollywood and you can write about being an entrepreneur in Hollywood and beyond. Would you be interested in your own call them in your own portal on Forbes. I was like, well, yeah, I could do that. And so, you know, the the first article did really, really well. And so they're like, basically, we're going to give you your own thing. So now I have my own LinkedIn portal on Forbes. So it sort of like came happenstance, but it was that moment again where it was like, send me some of the stuff you've written. I was like, well, I haven't written anything yet, but you know what? Like, I could do that. And so I just did it and they did well. And so everybody's happy. And so I cranked these things out. So, and that was fun and it opens up a whole bunch of doors as you can imagine. So, but it, yeah. Right. So things happen. So this decision, well, first of all, the decision to whether or not your kid should get onto Facebook was the original impetus for making. That was a big one. Why I'm not on Facebook. So that happens. You make the doc then the doc leads to another doc, which leads to a publicist, which leads to some meetings, which leads to this accidental Forbes. Yep. And you know, I was in a, the funny thing is, is I was in a, at the, at the Lux hotel meeting my uncle who's an investment banker and they were having an investment banker conference, which if you're in LA and you know, when there's people are not entertainment people in there, you're like, what are all these weird suits doing here? And it was an investment banking conference. And I was there with my uncle and you know, we had lovely dinner and everybody's having drinks and they were asking about TV stuff. And so I was pitching some ideas and, when you get around people who aren't entertainment, like they can get enamored pretty quickly, right? And I was probably having a very 
off week of everything getting passed on, feeling like, you know, I'm not good enough at anything. You get a bunch of people from the Midwest or whatever listening to your TV shows and your pitches, and there's 12 people gathered around. They're loving it. You get a little carried away, right? So I'm pitching other ideas. Oh, how about this one, guys? How about this one? They're cheering, and they're loving it, and I'm feeling like a rock star, right? It's, I think that's probably how it went down. Anyways, so after one of the investment guys, the banker said, hey, listen, can you come and teach my clients to do what you do? And I was like, oh my God, another person wanting me to pitch them real or like take their reality pitches. I was like, no, I cannot do that. He's like, I don't, you know, being in TV is too hard for people to learn how to do. And he's like, no, Nitwit, I don't want you to do that. I want you to come and teach my clients how to pitch their idea without putting people to sleep. Can you do that? And I was like, I don't know. I've never even thought of it. And he's like, well, come down to Florida. So I went down to Florida to his investment car. And it's a big investment conference with like, you know, small cap public companies pitching huge monster investment firms. So you're talking about $2 billion companies pitching for, you know, huge share things. And I sat through one of the investor presentations at oil and gas company. And it was the worst thing I had ever seen in my life. It was 22 minutes of, I can't understand what this guy is talking about, why anybody would be interested in his company or think it would be great. Couldn't even tell you what he was after. And so they asked me like, Hey, what do you think? And I was like, Oh, it's uh, I mean, it was a lot of information there. I'll have to sit through it again. Then I'll give you some notes. Cause I think I fell asleep for the first one. <laughs> and I went through the note and I went through it. I listened a little bit more carefully and in about 17 minutes. He had mentioned that he could still drill for oil at $32 a barrel where everybody else in the region was laying down the rigs at about 37 and oil had just dipped under 40 for the first time in however long. And so I asked him after I said, Hey, is this true? Can you do this? Why is it it's like, would you be willing to open your presentation? I rewrote his opening, right? So he opened with it and everybody in the room kind of perked up and then he went back to his regular crap. Oh my God. So after the next one, he was going to do it nine times over the next three days. So I sat with his PowerPoint, which was atrocious <laughs> and I helped him rework it a little bit and it went by the end of that three day sort of seminar or the conference, he, he was getting more questions. People were more interested. Like, it had changed a lot and he was like, I need to meet with you to redo my entire presentation. Can I hire you? You're hitched for business at this point. Yeah. Right. And I was like, uh, okay, yeah. Like, I didn't know what to charge. I didn't know anything. It's like, come on out. So he came to LA and I just looked at it like it was a TV show. I did the same thing with the post-its the way I normally t broke out a TV show in a pitch. I did it for an oil and gas you know, industry business I knew nothing about. And it like, it crushed it for him, crushed it for him. I still saved the voicemail that he, you know, called me like almost in tears saying like, this has changed my entire life. I used to dread going in front of these things. Now I'm excited. Like my wife thinks you put something, spike my drink. Like it was amazing. And I remember thinking like, holy crap, no network executive has ever said anything like this to me ever. And well, it was except for the like, atrocious part. <laughs> except for the atrocious. But it was just like, there was a connection there and I was like, wow. So I was excited and I liked the idea of that. So I started looking at doing a little bit more of that here and there and that started to go really well. So that started, started the track. Okay. So then, but that's, you still have an overall deal with SDX at this point, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, this is even before that. Oh, so you're yeah. back at three ball even. Yeah. Right. Okay. So at what point did you just decide I'm going to go full brand? Um, that was coming near the end of the SDX deal in this last year and a combination of just like the the business itself tv business is getting just so difficult i don't want to bring everybody down but 
it's just so difficult and it didn't it doesn't have the same upswing and the same opportunities as it used to so that was always irking on me and you know i had this tony robbins thing and that was kind of a sort of like the kick in the ass i really needed um he and i became friends i went and saw him do his thing and then he just sort of got in my head and scrambled it a little bit and then you know you do you spend enough time with that guy and you feel like you could do anything in the world so the idea of like hey i could quit my job and not do TV full time and just go out and do all these other things. It sounds ridiculous, except for if you hang around with Tony long enough, then it's like, it sounds totally normal. And the next thing you know, you're Jerry Maguire with your sort of goldfish being like, I'm out of here. And it's like, you know, so that was last year. Uh, and it's been the, it's been the greatest thing ever. It's been the greatest thing ever. Cause now I do, I do the creative that I like with, with TV and I work with like great producers and great studios. I'm working with Sony, Sony right now on a bunch of stuff, and I like love them. And I only do creative with them, and I don't have to worry about running a company or hitting my margins or trying to like I don't do any of that. I just create whatever I want to create. If it's good, it can sell. Off that goes, and then I focus on all these other things that I want to do as well. So it, it's it's taking what I've learned in television and applying it to other areas of life and sort of being unafraid and certain that things will work out. Well, and I would say, and I love that you, you know, that you're speaking to this larger point about people being able to pivot or, you know, if you're stuck in this lane, you can break out of it, but you're the exact same guy that you were when I first met you 15, 16 years ago. You just maybe positioning yourself slightly differently and presenting yourself differently, but it's not like yes. you at your core changed at all. No. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Right. You're just like doing the thing you were born to be doing, yes. but I wouldn't have said you weren't born to be doing the other thing either. You just maybe were self-aware enough to, to, to roll with the changes. Well, the I think it's just, it's, it's a mat. It's the lane you're in. Right. And so the idea is where success, where you find success, you end up focusing. And I think that, people assume that their lane is smaller than it really is and that what you found success in you think is a narrower um, lane than it really is it's like what you found success in is not being a network executive it's not at producing a television show what you found ex success is taking problems and solving them working with people and exploring solutions it's being creative and seeing things through there's there's overarching business strategy and life success that is done at the in the entertainment building uh, business at a very high level that we as entertainment executives l have lost sight of because we are so focused in this world i mean if you think about how many networks you actually pitch it's a handful of them and how many people you're interacting with and the types of programs that you're doing. If you're a reality company, for example, like it's so narrow that it's like, well, that can't contain the amount of skill and creativity that this industry really has. But we've sort of pinned ourselves into this little mold. Well, I foresee even more people kind of embracing the spirit of what you're doing. I mean, I can't even count on my hand the number of conversations I've had with people recently who reached out to me and I'm not even exactly doing what you're doing. Right. You know, just I've pivoted a bit, you've pivoted, you know, more significantly, but so many people are feeling so boxed in. Yeah. So unfulfilled, you know, their own versions of midlife crisis, you know, crises yeah. going on. But, you know, I I get it, you know, because when you're told you can only make a dating show, 
yeah. and you want to make other kinds of shows when you're told you're only a cable network executive when you see yourself as something more. So, you know, I, it's just listening to that is like, it's so crazy. I can't believe that that's where mentally I was as well. And every, like, you know, even the producer I was with at lunch today was exactly like that. He was just talking about this. It's like, he runs a big cable network and it's like, it's known for one thing and he's been doing that for years. And it's just like, uh, you think you're pigeonholed in that? That is insane. It's insane to think that you'd be pigeonholed in that little area. That's not true. It's like, you run a monster media company with hundreds of employees and creative elements and huge, like these skills and achievements that you've done are astronomical. And the fact that you don't value them because you think other people in this little tiny area don't value them is insane. I dare you to take one step outside your comfort zone and you go see how valuable those things are. It'll blow your mind. Well, so do you think then the secret is to leave our small bubble of TV producers? Do you think that's a secret for everyone? Yes. Right. I do because here's the thing. Like it, it can't have changed for me that much. The people I meet, the opportunities that come along. It's not like they just fell out of the sky and this was never happening. This was happening before. It was always happening. But it's like one of those paintings with the meshed colors. Like until you cross your eyes a certain way, you can't even see what's going on. You need the glasses that filter out things to see all the other elements. And it's like the number of people that we meet in this business or who want to meet with us that have things going on, that have other elements are it's unbelievable and i just don't think we interpret that we don't hear that language we don't understand those signs because we're not looking for them when we haven't been looking for them we've been in our own world being like oh he's the evp at abc i've got to work with him and that's the only thing that matters and like you get so caught up in that and if you look just one step outside you're like whoa and even someone like Brent Montgomery, if you look at what he's doing with Wheelhouse, it's like he's not trying to step real far out of TV, but he can barely contain himself because so many other things are falling in his lap. And it's not because it just magically started happening. It's because he started looking for them. And it's like anybody in this business, I, I dare you for the next 30 days, sort of write down all the people that you meet and come across that aren't in TV that have things going on. And you'll have a list of 45 different people or whatever it is. And you'll be like, holy crap. Like those are avenues and spider webs and connections, six degrees to things you don't even know exist out there. That your skills in TV would be unbelievably valued and appreciated. But, and I'm not trying to be pessimistic here because you are like a ray of sunshine and you're such an optimist. <laughs> and I'm optimistic also. And I'm just trying to play devil's advocate a little bit for any doubters who are listening to this interview who are afraid to take that leap. Right. To that, I would yeah. say, well, but why would they go with me when there's people they already know or maybe people from their industry who have done that thing that it reads more clearly on their LinkedIn or on their resume? You know, what would listen? Those are all valid concerns for average people and average things. What you have to appreciate is that entertainment business is not average. It's just not. It's like high Wall Street finance and politics and entertainment, those are like three very strange, very niche sort of captive industries that excel in certain things that you just don't even, you don't 
understand it until you look outside of it. And I'm saying if you've had a success in the entertainment business and in development or production or the network or whatever, in any sort of level, you probably have lost sight of the value of that level because the pond is at a very, it's just very high. It's very hard to get into. There are only X number of development executives at X number of networks in the world, right? And you're talking about a couple of dozen mainstream cable and broadcast networks, right? So, yeah, there's a whole bunch of new streamers now and there's all these little cable things, but in the you're still talking about a few dozen. So you're talking about, what, less than a thousand people in sort of total that run around and it, at that kind of like in the in the scope of this country and the 300 million people, it's a tiny subset and it's highly competitive and people have these sort of how aspirational it is. And it's like, you, you got to have something to have made it in this and you got to have something. And the fact is, is that you think that that something is only applied here. That's crazy talk. Right. It's crazy. So what do you think the foreseeable future looks like for you? Are you one that plans very far in advance or are you more like, you know, just- I, I used to, I used to plan, but I used to plan like, I think like what everybody else did, which is I think about the burning fires of problems that are out there in my life. Oh, what if this happens? What if I get fired here? What if nobody wants to talk to me there? What if this goes wrong? What if this happens here? What if the market goes down? Right. And I see these burning fires of, of issue. And then I plot a strategy through life and through decisions around those burning fires. And so now I've sort of realized that those sort of burning fires is a Tony Robbins thing, but those burning fires are more of a mirage they're more of programming in your DNA to sort of try to keep you safe so you're always thinking that you're not enough, that it isn't going to work out. That's not your brain. That's your two million year old brain telling you this. It's not, you know, not an original thought. And now I don't look at it like that anymore. I don't look at the future and think I got to avoid all these problems. I look at the future and be like, I'm going to go towards opportunity. And I see opportunity where I probably wouldn't have seen it before. And now it's like I make... I make better decisions because it's not all about the money. It's not all about like, oh my God, I need security and safety and I need to be like contained. I'm I'm much better at like what could be out there. You don't let fear be your driver. No. No, and I and I and I try to op- operate from a place of certainty. Like I'm certain things will work out. And this is what I said to you when you came to sit with me. I was like, it will work out. The last 20 years of your life should be a statistical example of how things work out for you. It's gone pretty well right? Since the day you left college, everything has gone well. You've gotten better. You've gotten broader. You've gotten wiser. You've got people like you better. Like you've made more money. Everything in your life has gone that way for 20 years. So pretty sure it's going to be fine. All right. So many of the listeners yes. are younger. They're starting out, right? They're thinking yeah. that entertainment is the end all be all. They're maybe in college at a film school. This is all they've ever wanted to do. And now yeah. they're hearing your advice. You know, the ghost of Christmas future you're like, listen, you shouldn't be so specific. Yep. Um, what, and the question I always ask is, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? Right? So 25, you, I guess you were 30 when you came to America, but let's imagine for a second you were 25 when you came here. Yeah. What, would you have done things the same? What advice would you give young Brandt in 2019? Listen, that's a hard question for me specifically because, and I just wrote an article for Forbes about this exact thing, which is, you know, you can't follow my path. You can't follow anybody else's roadmap to success because the journey here has been so littered with failure and stress and problems and 
outrageous amounts of luck and good fortune and timing. And like, that's pretty well how the road to success works, right? So, and if you take a lot of the mega successful people, and I've been interviewing a lot of them for the book, it's kind of like none of them will say, oh, do exactly what I did, right? So I couch this, and I, and I speak a lot of colleges now, so I, I give some of this advice. I say, I say this, one, I would say it will work out. If you focus, if you relax, and you just follow through with what you're doing, opportunities will present themselves. Mapping it out and trying so hard is not necessary because life has a way of working itself out. But one of my articles that I wrote was sort of like the key to choosing a side hustle. And I sort of, I play that across anything you choose to do is like a good idea is not necessarily a good opportunity. And there's a difference. And if you look at some of the most successful people, they were focused. And so I think the core for a young person is to focus on something and be exceptional at it because there are very few people that are exceptional at things. And if you pick something specific to be exceptional at, if you give it enough time, you will be unbelievably exceptional at it and things will work out. That will open doors to other opportunities. And I think a lot of us that have high level skills and a comp- like we're very competent and we understand things, we end up getting sort of bombarded with almost opportunities. Things that we could get to the one yard line. And I used to teach my development sort of department this is that like anything can almost be a TV show. The goal of a development department is not to make things almost on TV. It's you got to get it into the end zone. And what you choose not to work on is as valuable or more valuable than what you choose to work on. And so as a young person, I would say, and I would advise my own children, is like pick something, focus on it. When you get proficient enough, you will learn skills that you will then translate into other opportunities. You look at a bunch of opportunities now, you're not ready for them yet. And you'll, you won't, you won't get there. You'll have to end up getting as lucky and going through as much pain as I did to maybe not make it. And that's not a good formula. Sounds like a terrible formula. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But you've made it, you made it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Somewhere Yeah. to somebody. And it depends on perspective. A lot of people out there would look at my life and be like, how do you live on that? That's terrible. That's awful. Right. And a lot of people, and like I said, in one of my articles, like if I would have seen myself, if I could, my 25 year old person could look up here and see where I am, I've been like, I would have thought, oh my God, you've, you've made it. This is the greatest thing ever. You need nothing else in life. That's the ultimate success. And I don't remember thinking or feeling that one day on the way journey here. And I remember I was with a very wealthy individual that I was working with and I was at his house giving, he was giving me a tour of his house that he was renting in Sunset Plaza or whatever. And it was the most beautiful house I'd seen. And I was like wide eyed and like, oh my God. And he was so ambivalent about it because it was his house. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, is that what I'm like when I'm giving someone a tour of my house? Like I used to freak out and go gaga over that house when I'd see it or pull up to it. And like, I don't do that anymore. It's like, when did I start moving the goalposts of what success is supposed to feel like? Like you're supposed to feel like you've made it when you envision what making it is. You're not supposed to get there and then be like, oh, I don't feel like that. I got to get somewhere else. And that's been a big change for me as well. I, I've, I've kind of stopped doing that. I try to like, this is it. This is what I've made it. There is nothing better. This is as good as it's going to get. And like, I'm totally okay with that. 
this is in this right now. This right now, this interview with you. This is as good as things get, and I'm okay with that. I was thinking the exact same thing. Yes, buddy, absolutely. But you really are. I said a ray of sunshine. I also think you're kind of like a fortune cookie, you know, <laughs> with the wisdom. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> but it's you're helping a lot of people, and that's something that really speaks to me. Hopefully, it speaks to all the listeners of this. Uh, you obviously, I mentioned earlier, have a podcast of your own. I do. Yeah. Why yeah, I'm not? It's called Why I'm Not. Yeah. Which is incredibly successful. Yeah, it's been. I mean, listen, it's it's been good, but it's a little guest dependent, right? As you know, like you have certain guests and it, it, the idea of the podcast originally was it was going to be like all these topics that I wanted to dive deep into and, and that I didn't understand I was going to explore. Right. And then I'd have, I had Rob Lowe as a guest. Well, all of a sudden the, the downloads jump like crazy and it's like, Ooh, that was really neat. And you know, and then I, and then I had King Batch or Amanda Cerny or Ben Shapiro or, and then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, right. Like you put a celebrity guest on all of a sudden your numbers go up. And so it's like, I hit a million downloads, but those five guests brought me like 620,000 downloads of them. So it's, it's great. I like, I do it about once a month. It's good for the brand. I like it. It's fun, but well, it's, you know, podcasting is a pain in the butt. It is a, but it is our pain in the butt. It is our pain in the butt. And, uh, I don't know. I just think it's ironic that it's called why I'm not when you are so many things. <laughs> well, listen, there's a lot of stuff I don't understand and how it became. So yet, yet. Well, thank you for your time. I love sitting with you. I really think people are going to learn and appreciate you know, from your wisdom here, definitely listen to why I'm not. Yes. And the book will be out October 29th on all book things. It's called the three minute rule, how to say less and get more of every pitch and presentation. Beautiful. So hopefully your listeners will be ready to pre-order it on Amazon because it's on there now. Perfect for Halloween. Yeah. Perfect for Halloween. We'll make a great gift, all that kind of stuff. (laughs) I, I, I don't know. I, I don't suggest you give it to the trick-or-treaters, though. No, exactly. Right. Or Unless you, you want to buy a bunch of them, because I'm hoping somebody buys a bunch of them. It's nerve-wracking. Right, right. You will wind up with eggs on your front door <laughs> if you do that. So thank you, my friend. You got it, buddy. So there you have it. The real story of Reject Average. Thanks to Greg Mercer for creating our show art, and to Chris Carmichael for composing our music and for all things technical. You can find their respective work at gregorymercer.com and christophercarmichael.com. Thank you as well to our guest, Grant Pinvidic and to my wonderful family for all of their help and support. Also, please do subscribe to Exec Producer wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. And since collaboration is at the heart of this project, I'd love to hear from you, the listeners. Please reach out with what you liked, what you didn't like, and any ideas for future episodes. So thank you again for listening, and please come back next time. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Choose kind. <laughs>